Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Holly Fry. And there's been a lot of cool news lately. Yeah. Big news stories. This one was kind of huge. This one was really huge. It's an exhumation, which is the ultimate subject of this podcast. Yeah. Holly. You just don't get hands-on history like that. This is this is a big deal for you, too, because <laughs> this is your induction. In, this is your first exhumation for the podcast, <laughs> as far as I know, unless we unless we miss some some in the earlier episodes we did. This is a big one, though. This, this is a big one. In February 2013, so just earlier this month, there was an announcement that a skeleton was unearthed from a parking lot in England, mm-hmm. and that that skeleton belonged to King Richard III. None other. So excavations had started a few months earlier, back in September, and they found him almost immediately. And uh, they weren't sure at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, took a while to do some testing. But there were a few signs that made it pretty likely that this was Richard. One was the skeleton had a slight build. Yeah. Uh, it looked to be somebody who had died in his late 20s or early 30s. Somebody who had had a high-protein diet, like a wealthy nobleman. The people that could afford the, the meat. And then this is these are the two big ones. Yeah. Scoliosis and brutal battle injuries. A massive skull fracture, nine other wounds. Some believe to have been inflicted after death. Um, a very beaten-up skeleton. Yeah. All of which kind of led people to think they might really be on to the real deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And radiocarbon dating on two of the ribs showed the man would have died between 1455 and 1540. And Richard died in 1485, so that was also corroborating. And then comparisons between the remains and two distant relatives of Richard's, their descendants of a sister, were a match for mitochondrial DNA, which follows the maternal line. So that was sort that of was like the, the ha ha, we got it for real. Yeah. So they're still doing some additional research to confirm a match on the male side. Uh, but they went ahead and made the announcement that this was Richard, quote, beyond reasonable doubt. And thus began the flood of emails. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Facebook messages, tweets, everybody telling us Richard III has been identified. Yeah. Time for a podcast. Yeah. And well, you don't get bigger historical news no, than this, really. No, I didn't want to. I didn't want this one to just be lurking around until <laughs> a end of year roundup or something. Yeah. This is huge news in history, and really is a good opportunity to to talk about Richard the Third son because people have been requesting an episode on him for ages anyway, and. It's such big news for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Richard was the last Plantagenet king, so that's a big deal. Yep. It's a very long family yes. there, a long line of rulers. He was the last English king to die in battle, so this very dramatic death, mm-hmm. these very visible battle uh wounds on his on his skeleton. But I think most importantly, I think this is why it's such a big deal, is because he is famous as Shakespeare's hunchbacked villain. Yeah. That's how people think of Richard III. Yeah, I mean, Richard III is one of those roles that 
every actor wants to play at some point in his life. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a touchstone of, you know, success as an actor to play Richard III well. Yeah. And so tortured, cruel, misshapen, man. like there and there are so many different interpretations of him that have happened historically in different productions of that play. It's everybody has sort of a a weird familiarity with him Mm -hmm. because they've seen one version or another. And if they, you know, have been in the theater at all, they've certainly either been involved or known people that were. And there's a weird reverence for the whole story that's, yeah, I think we kind of get attached to it in a unique way that doesn't happen with other stories of kings. I can think of uh, my Shakespeare professor in college, very first day of class. This was the first play that we read coming into class <laughs> with one and shoulder <laughs> raised higher than the other. That's awesome. Rattling off some some lines. It's a it's a very memorable character and I think um that character has really competed uh, since Richard's death with the real man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, what are we supposed to believe? And, and there's so many mysteries tied up in it too, namely the mystery of the princes in the tower. Yes. Uh, which just to, just so you don't get your hopes up too much, we're not going into all the conspiracies on that one. Could easily be another show. It is. It's outside the scope of just a Richard the Third. It is. Episode. Uh, but one of the things that is so neat when you start reading about Richard the Third is that his, History, the history of his history (laughs) is just as fascinating, really, as his life. How much it's changed, how the Tudor PR machine comes in and just decimates this guy. Uh, Then he goes through this sort of strange resurgence of Richard wasn't. He was actually a pretty good king Um, in catching up to present day where I think historians try to look at it from a balanced perspective. Uh, Why did he do what he did? What is just made up and clearly meant to to defame him? Yeah. Um, And then what did he do? That's actually pretty sketchy. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what uh, a lot of what drives that for most modern historians is they kind of look at what really makes the most sense of the stories Mm -hmm. where it's like what there are a lot of outlandish claims and and writings about him. And it's you kind of have to sift through that and go, this is really the most likely scenario. And and how does he compare to other kings of his day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how, how much in line were his actions with those of others? And also considering he was a king who reigned for a remarkably short amount of time, yeah. the usurper who reigned for a short amount of time, how would his history have differed had he held the throne for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably would have been remarkably different. But we're going to start with the beginning. He was born October 2nd, 1452. And he had really great family circumstances. I mean, born to to one of the top families in the land at the yeah. time. His father was Richard III, Duke of York, who was one of the most powerful noblemen. He was descended from England's King Edward III, who has popped up in this podcast before. But the main thing to remember for this episode's purposes is that Edward III was a guy with a lot of kids. Yeah, he was uh, a producer. He was. It's going to come <laughs> into play in just a few minute when, minutes when we do our really short recap of of how the War of the Roses started. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And his mother was Cecily Neville, who was also really well connected and also descended from Edward III. Um, 
but Richard was the fourth son in the family. So at that point, it's kind of, you may have all of the benefits of being a wealthy family, but the odds of you ever having the power red are meat, pretty nil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was low down on the line there. Um, but circumstances started to change when Richard was still a really young child. His father made a grab for the throne, um, effectively kicking off the War of the Roses. And that was, of course, between the House of Lancaster, which was represented by the reigning king at the time, Henry VI, and the House of York, which was represented by Richard's father. And um, this, again, it's not a War of the Roses podcast, and yes. you could do so many shows on this, but it is important to understand the background and where these claims came from and how these cousins started fighting each other in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and the most basic part of the story is uh, Edward III. He lived from 1312 to 1377 and really had too many children, eight of which were sons. Yes, that was... This is the problem. <laughs> this is where all the trouble starts. Uh, Too many sons. When a king has eight sons, there's going to be some infighting over who really deserves. going to be some cousins yeah. fighting it out. Um, so it may not have gone that way if his eldest son's line had been a little stronger than it was. But that died out when his grandson, who was King Richard II, was starved to death and usurped by his cousin, who was a descendant from the third son. Okay? so I feel like we need a big flow chart. Oh, I know. I wish I could just project <laughs> a family tree for you guys right now. But first son's line dies out. Right. Third son's line comes into power. And these are the Lancastrian kings. And if you are up on your Shakespeare, these are guys you know, because this is Henry the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth. And they ruled for... Uh, about half a century, mm -hmm. even though they did not have the best claim to the throne because they were descended from that third son. The best claim, or the better claim, would go to the Yorks, who were descended from Edward III's second son. Right. So son number two should have been, the that line should have been the family that takes in after the first son died, but because son number three had a more aggressive or assertive group. Mm -hmm. They they were just older at the right power, time. Yeah, but they maybe didn't really, in terms of bloodline and the standard hierarchy of how monarchies pass from one to the next, they really didn't have as strong a grip on that whole thing. That didn't become a huge issue though until the reign of Henry the Sixth. Because I mean, Henry the Fifth, obviously a very strong king. Yeah, people aren't going to quibble too much if the king in power is doing a pretty good job of yeah. it. Henry VI, though, became king when he was just an infant, and he was he did not grow up well-suited to being king. Um, and he also would, from time to time, slip in and out of a mentally incompetent state. He would become confused. So um, probably not the best person to lead a country. No, and somebody who, if you had a better claim to the throne, you might start thinking, well, here's the guy to overthrow. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Richard, Duke of York, who was descended from that second son of Edward III's on his mom's side, and just to boot, and to confuse you guys some more, <laughs> he's descended from the fourth son, too, on his dad's side, but because that doesn't matter as much. He decided at this point he was going to make a push for the throne. And these 
um, battles between these distant cousins uh, kicked off when our subject, Richard, is just a little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, Richard really had what you could consider the classic royal sad childhood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he wasn't even royal at that no. point. His father was killed in battle in 1460. Uh, and in the gruesome portion, his head was paraded on a pike with a paper crown. Yeah. Uh, which is not a good thing for a young child to know of. No, okay. certainly not. And and he lost a brother, too. His, his older brother, Edmund, died in battle as a teen. And for a while, it seemed like Richard, even as a, as a little boy, was in pretty grave danger. Yeah. Because he and his next oldest brother, George, who was also a child at the time, were sent abroad for safety for a time. Yeah. Which was not uncommon no. at the time. For- Get your kids out of the country, exactly. and then they'd grow up, and then they'd come back and fight each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but eventually, the Yorkist cause prevailed, led by Richard's eldest brother, Edward. Uh, and Richard saw his 19-year-old brother crowned king in 1461. Uh, so Richard was made the Duke of Gloucester and was raised for a time in the household of his brother's greatest supporter, um, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, the Kingmaker. The Kingmaker. He comes into play again. <laughs> um, so this is the point where we can start examining things. Um, motives. Yeah, motives, yeah. hindsight. <laughs> um and for the most extreme monster Richard histories, uh-huh. this is the point. He's just a teenager where he starts thinking, hmm, how can I get my hands on that throne? Um, one thing, though, despite all the uncertainties about Richard's life, one thing that is very clear is that he was incredibly loyal to his brother Edward while Edward was alive. And it's easy to see why. I mean, Edward is clearly much older than him. He clearly looks up to him in battle. Um it it seems clear why Richard would would stay so close to his brother. Well, especially when so many other family members have passed in all of this fighting, mm-hmm. the ties that remain get stronger, and you know you become sort of more dug into what that means to you in terms of family and just staying alive too, um, keeping close to somebody who has managed to to claim the power. And- <laughs> <laughs> gone to the top spot. Uh, Richard's motto, incidentally, is is actually loyalty binds me. Uh, and that's certainly <laughs> referring to that Edward relationship. So I think we can put aside the he's beginning to plot at 16. <laughs> yeah, unlikely. Because um, he, he wouldn't really have had any reason to, to think things would go down the way they did. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible at that point that he may have realized that there's that after his brother, he would be the mm-hmm. next. He still had another brother in front of him, too. He's still down the line. Yeah, that there's he he may be keenly aware of his place in the hierarchy. But again, he's so young and so loyal. It seems odd to think that he was already, you know, who can I twisting eliminate? his hands and scheming over it? Exactly. Uh, the loyalty, though, really was tested pretty pretty early on, still when he was a teenager, when Warwick turned against Edward and attempted to reinstate Henry VI, the deposed king. And the rebellion was successful, and for a little bit, Edward was forced to flee the country, 
Richard came with him, mm-hmm. and eventually they made a dramatic return fighting together. Richard was at one point injured in battle and really put an end to this Lancastrian cause. The heir to the throne, who was a 17-year-old son mm-hmm. of Henry VI, was killed in battle or, as some rumors have it, murdered as a captive. And then not long after that, Henry VI himself was murdered. It's likely he wasn't murdered before then because his son presented a much more appealing prospect as a future king than mm-hmm. this ineffectual king who went through periods of mental confusion. But both of the Lancaster guys out of the picture at this point, and Edward is really decisively in power yes. by now. Um, so rumor number one. <laughs> of many to come. Of many. Uh, and this one is really easy to, to set straight. Those two deaths we just talked about, the Lancastrian 17-year-old heir and then Henry VI himself, uh, some stories suggest Richard murdered them both. Right. <laughs> um, it's possible that he did supervise the murder of Henry VI, but it was on Edward's orders, his brother Edward's orders, um, it was clearly Edward the Fourth who ordered the death, and it was clearly him, you know, as the new king who yeah. who needed to have his his potential rival, this other figurehead, removed from removed. the picture. Mm-hmm. But Richard was only eighteen, still only eighteen, and and which I know it's a different time, and eighteen was older than eighteen is now, but it still seems just so striking to think about how young he was and how much he had been through already. It does, and I think that comes down a little bit to the popular depictions of him, too. I hadn't put two and two together and realized he was 32 when he's killed. Yeah, uh, really young. You, you think of him as a elderly Well, and I think a lot of man. characterizations of him have been as a more adult man, mm-hmm. whether accidentally, like they just hadn't taken into account the age, or if that's just sort of the natural progression of like an actor's characterization, that if he has that much power and he's hunchback, he kind of develops this, you know, maturity that maybe mm-hmm. wasn't there. And so, yeah, just 18, 18, super young, only 18 years old. His brother is king, solid position, finally. And this is when Richard really kicks off an adult life. I mean, his his life up to this point has been one of extreme uncertainty. Running in battles. From really about <laughs> three years old yeah. on. Um but at this point, he solidifies his position as a nobleman, just as his brother has solidified his position as king. He married the widow of the dead Lancastrian prince, Anne Neville. He inherited huge parts of northern England, some of Wales. And he was eventually also appointed his brother's lieutenant in the north. And from accounts I've read, he really did focus on setting up a dynasty in the north. <laughs> right. um, not in any sort of competitive way, but just I will be a wealthy landowner. He was taking care of what was then his. Yes, exactly. And this sort of respectability <laughs> that he seems to be projecting at this point uh, differs so dramatically from the other York brother who's still living at this point, George, Duke of Clarence, oh, who's George. just the, the black sheep of the family. George was keenly aware that he was next in line. He was. I mean, 
he uh having that brother in between was probably a good thing for Richard. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, because George was plotting against Edward the Fourth, dabbled in many plots against him, and eventually it turned around and bit him on the behind because he was executed on orders in fourteen seventy eight. Uh, and then there's another Richard rumor. There is, and that's that Richard was the one who drove Edward to have their brother executed. Um, according to Jeffrey Richards in History Today, though, there's some evidence that Richard actually tried to dissuade Edward from this plan to execute their brother. <laughs> um, but it's worth noting, too, that Richard was clearly the big-time benefactor yeah. <laughs> from George's death. Um, and then we're not just talking about, oh, it's another step closer to the throne by this point. Um, he inherited more it's, stuff. It's George's stuff. And, and actually, um, George's wife and Richard's wife were sisters. So he gets some extra Neville inheritance, too. <laughs> um, but it's pretty likely that Richard really would have just continued on. I mean, we can't say for sure, but would have continued on as this powerful northern lord who's married, starting a family, um, acting as his brother's lieutenant in the north. He even got a, a permission, essentially, during the Scottish Wars to anything he could get of Scotland was his. So he might have focused on consolidating his power yeah. in that part of the country. Had Edward not died on April 9th, 1483, very suddenly, aged only 40, it threw everyone for a loop. They were not prepared for this death. No. And that meant that uh, Edward IV's 12-year-old son, Edward, was now the king. And we know from, I mean, history teaches us again and again, when children become monarchs, it usually doesn't go fabulously well. No, and I mean, this is so close, too. Just a matter of a few years, and you have to think that um, English history might have been pretty dramatically different here. Um, Since 12, we're just talking about how Richard was 18. Not a huge difference, you know. But um, Richard was deemed Lord Protector. uh, And initially, it, it seemed... He was in York at the time. He swore allegiance to his nephew. It seemed like he was game for this, that he would be loyal to... He was to, ready to step into his role as protector. Yeah, loyal to his his brother's son, just mm-hmm. as he had been loyal to his brother. Uh, started hurrying south to London. But <laughs> there was some trouble brewing. Yeah. And it started with the king's council. And the council was dominated by... The young king, Edward V's uh, maternal relatives, the Woodvilles. Right. Uh, and just a little background on them. Edward IV had, uh, you know, we talked about how he really managed to consolidate his power. But most historians consider his biggest mistake was his marriage choice. He yeah. married a commoner, very beautiful commoner, a widow, Elizabeth Woodville. And they had a lot of kids themselves. They apparently liked each other a lot. But... She was not popular with people. Right. And uh, she came with 13 siblings. <laughs> Big family. Yeah. So there were a lot of in-laws at uh, Edward IV's court. Um, 
Her brothers took up important positions. Her sisters were married off to a lot of the top nobles, some of whom really did not like being forced into these marriages with these commoners. Um, and she also came with two older sons, too, who grew up to be Edward IV's close companions. Um, so all these Woodvilles. <laughs> There's a herd of Woodvilles. There's a herd of Woodvilles. And they rejected the plan for Richard to become Lord Protector, clearly hoping that um, if little Edward, 12-year-old Edward, could just officially be king, they could run the the show. They could be the ones in control of him. Right. So they didn't want someone with power and knowledge of how things are run in any way impeding their ability to kind of, uh, you know, whisper in the ear of a very young and probably impressionable monarch. Mm-hmm. But Richard wanted to overcome the Woodvilles as, um, you know, you would in that situation. That yeah. seems like a pretty natural response. He wanted to stay his nephew's Lord Protector, allegedly not usurping the throne. Seemed that way at first. Yeah. <laughs> um, although he did make sure he got control of his nephew. Right. And that's one of those things that can kind of be colored by history. Like, it could just be that he wanted to make sure the boy was in his presence and protected, mm-hmm. or that the boy was in his presence and protected. protected. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in the more dominating kind of way, perhaps. Uh, and then he also arrested his Woodville side, the uncle and half-brother, who were the people really kind of making these plots to get rid of Richard as the protector. So Elizabeth Woodville's reaction to this, to her son being... being scooped up by Richard. Yeah, removed from his, his half-brother and uncle's protection and <laughs> put into Richard's protection. Um, she got very concerned. Yeah. And went into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey, took her younger son and her daughters and hid out trying to figure out what was going on. Um, but it did still seem like Richard was planning on fulfilling his responsibility as Lord Protector, that he was making, actively making plans for, for Edward V's coronation, mm-hmm. um, didn't seem to be making a bid yet to claim the throne himself until June when something clicked, something changed. And Richard started feeling out uh, the royal council and and feeling out who on the council was just completely opposed to the idea of, of Edward V being passed over. Right. Who couldn't get past that idea? Those who could not get past that idea were removed. And on June 16th, Is that removed with air quotes. Removed. Some of them, <laughs> some of them get parts removed. Um, June 16th, too, he made a very ominous move. Yeah, he surrounded Westminster Abbey, where his his sister-in-law was was hiding out with her children, and convinced Elizabeth to let her younger son Richard. Um, also Richard, <laughs> um, out of Westminster Abbey to attend his brother's coronation. Oh, yeah. She, of course she should be there. <laughs> she agreed. This is where you get into all sorts of conspiracy theories. That could be a whole other episode. Did she really send her, her son? Right. Um, but we're going to go with 
<laughs> the assumption she did right now. And then on June 25th, he started executing Woodville's, uh, the maternal uncle, one of them, um, the older half-brother, one of them. So <laughs> it's clear that this is not friendly Lord Protector behavior anymore. No. Uh, he's on a bit of a killing spree. And there again, it's one of those things where we we can't ever know what conversations were happening or what sort of motivations were driving him to this behavior. Mm-hmm. So for all we know, it was completely of honorable intent, mm. but it hasn't really been colored that way historically. No, it hasn't because he does ultimately, he's offered the crown and, and he, he does doesn't it, really hesitate. He accepts it. Yeah. It seems like, um, and, well, and I think actually the speed of which all this, uh, the speed of um, how everything goes down, all in June, essentially. Yeah. He's crowned July 6, 1483, um, when his brother died in April. But all of this action really takes place in June. And I think the speed of that is what has made so many people think he must have been planning this for a long time. Right. Just quietly. Because it, it just seems so perfect. Uh, everything seemed to go off without a hitch. Um, Smooth and quiet. And for the, the most part, I mean, compared to. Suddenly people just weren't there anymore. Yeah. And and the biggest example of that and really the curse for Richard during the rest of his reign and certainly for his legacy is the fate of the two little boys. Yes. So 12-year-old King Edward V and 10-year-old Richard, who's taken out to that coronation that never happens. Um, Richard did some behind-the-scenes legal work. On, on their fate, had them declared illegitimate. The story was Edward IV had, had actually been pre-contracted when he married Elizabeth, which is as good as married. And the kids were, therefore, all illegitimate. But uh, the kids were... Because then she would be determined to be a mistress and she not would be a the mistress, true wife. And all of these princes and princesses would be illegitimate. Right. Um, some people have said, well, at that point, he wouldn't have had to murder them because they were declared illegitimate, so they wouldn't have been a threat. Clearly, they were going to be a threat, no matter well, the what. the Woodfields, I mean, they they had the gumption to move on their their ideas and their plans. They weren't really like a, oh, okay, we're just illegitimate, going to accept that kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of family. <laughs> well, and issues like legitimacy could be overturned right. easily, as, as this one actually was during the reign of Henry VII. But... Um, the little boys were being kept in the Tower of London, and around this time, around the uh, time Richard became king, they were moved deeper into the tower. And there's a great uh, contemporary account from Dominic Mancini, who was an Italian visitor, who was in London at the time. He had a very impartial view of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so his his musings on things are interesting. But he wrote that... Uh, the boys started to be seen pretty rarely around the tower. They used to be let out to play. Then folks didn't see them very much anymore. And then, quote, at length, they ceased to appear altogether. That sounds so ominous. It does. And and it is sad. And there isn't, to this day, um, clear evidence about what happened to them. But it's pretty obvious that everyone generally accepted that they had been murdered um, because by the fall 
of, of that same year, by the fall of 1483, their mother, Elizabeth Woodville, made a secret arrangement with another noblewoman, Margaret Beaufort, to marry her eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York, to Margaret's son, Henry Tudor, who was, at this point, really stepping up to be the next pretender, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the the next guy who wanted the throne. Yeah. Clearly, Elizabeth Woodville would not have made an arrangement like that, would not have sanctioned the claim of Henry Tudor if she thought that she had two York sons still living. Yeah. Yeah, that's the desperate move of a mother who's just trying to cling to whatever option she has mm-hmm. left. Um, but then she publicly accepted Richard. And that's another sign. As the king, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she and her daughters were allowed to come out of sanctuary. But, I mean, that whole series of events transpiring really kind of suggested that she either knew or suspected slash believed that the princes were gone. Mm-hmm. I think certainly. And then uh, we can look to Richard himself, too. He would strenuously deny a lot of rumors during his reign, one of which was that he wanted to marry Elizabeth of York, his niece, for himself uh, after after his wife died. Um, but he never discussed the rumors about the little boys in the tower and what had happened to them. So uh, I've seen it described as deathly silence <laughs> on the topic. Uh, eventually, there was a confession by uh, Sir James Tyrrell in 1502, but a lot of it is pretty unreliable. The one part that is worth mentioning for this story, though, and again, so much more could be said on the Princess yeah. in the Tower, but um, he mentioned bodies being buried at the foot of a staircase in the tower. And in 1674, there were some renovations going on in the tower, and two children's skeletons were found at the base of a staircase during that renovation. And then in 1933, some forensic work was done to confirm that they were the skeletons of boys who were about 10 or 12 years old. You have to think now with the news of Richard's skeleton, if these had been found later in a way um, where (laughs) the DNA work could have been done, yeah, uh, this would probably be a different <laughs> sort of story. Yeah. Details would be confirmed or denied yeah. much more clearly by the science of it. Um, and then, you know, people start to think, why would Richard, this man who had been so loyal mm-hmm. to previous monarchs, want to take the crown? Like, what was it that drove him? Was he just ambitious? Was he afraid of the Woodvilles having power? And we should we should talk about that for a minute because that is a pretty legitimate fear, right? Um, even even if he had insisted on being Lord Protector, even if he had been Lord Protector through these few years of minority that Edward V would have had. I mean, he was 12 years old. He's almost there. Yeah, <laughs> almost grown up. Just hang on for a few more. <laughs> I just got to keep you safe for a little while. <laughs> Even um, even if he had performed that function through his nephew's reign, he would be in a pretty risky position um, afterwards mm-hmm. in relation to the Woodvilles as somebody who did have a lot of power, who did have a claim to the throne himself. Right. Um, and who was influential in a way they might not have wanted him to be with his nephew. So 
Ambition, yes, certainly. Fear of the Woodvilles seems quite possible. And then this one, I think, is the least likely. Some sort of righteousness if you really believe that the kids were illegitimate. And it seems like there was so much paperwork shuffling to make that claim Mm -hmm. that it it seems orchestrated enough that the righteousness theories don't really hold the same level of water as the other two. I agree. Um, So... (laughs) Whatever his motives were, he did manage to take the crown, but he lost it so quickly. And the entire time he held it, he was just plagued by scandal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... We mentioned this already in the beginning, but you have to wonder a little bit what what would people think of this guy if he had managed to uh, put down Henry VII later, the eventual Henry VII, Henry Tudor, um, and reign for 30 years and start, you know, continue his dynasty. Um, Yeah, would he be seen in a completely different light? Would he be judged for for the works he had done while he was king, or would people still be like, the thing with the princes and the tower? But we're not sure about those kids. Yeah, (laughs) something something went down there. Yeah. Um, We we have to look at it, though, not just focusing intently on the princes and the tower story, though, because that's what we think of most today. It certainly was an issue at the time. But Richard was unpopular for a lot of reasons. He yeah, didn't just was, have to rely on that. That was one that. of an assortment. It was. And and it's really some of the other reasons that drove people to different coalitions of people who didn't have much in common to, to decide that they could all agree to hate Richard. <laughs> they love to hate him. Uh, yeah, he replaced a lot of the leaders and men in power with his cronies from the north that he mm-hmm. had, you know, cultivated relationships with. And he alienated the Woodvilles. Um, it's possible that he felt they were responsible for his brother George's execution. Um, and he completely alienated the Edward the Fourth loyalists. Obviously, like he really—it's almost like he had a checklist of like, how can I make as many people angry as possible in the shortest amount of time? And probably not thinking that they would all get along. Um, the situation got a lot worse for him too when his only son, his heir, died in 1484, and then his wife died the next year, 1485. Another Richard myth-busting rumor time. Um, he didn't poison his wife. <laughs> she died probably of consumption. Um, so, bad bad times. <laughs> yeah. Being, being king is, is not all it's, it's not a cakewalk to be. <laughs> no. And rebellion really did start almost immediately, you know, from all of these different people who feel alienated or um, frustrated by what he's done. Or even had just come to distrust him because of the, all of the rumors swirling yeah, around him. Certainly. Um, Richard, pretty powerful guy still with a lot of northern support and respect, mm-hmm. managed to suppress rebellions initially. Unfortunately for him, though, a lot of the leaders managed to escape and they reorganized under Henry Tudor, who we were talking about earlier, engaged to young Elizabeth of York, making um, them a pretty glamorous couple, (laughs) uniting this true York claim with, with Elizabeth to this guy, Tudor, who's honestly pretty, pretty weak claimant. Um, but a really strong leader, a really... Which um, is like a perfect recipe against a leader who is 
already living in a shadow of like his own horrible reputation. Yeah, clearly, clearly. So Henry Tudor came in, he had French and Scottish mercenaries, um, and he came to arms with Richard, ultimately, August 22nd, 1485, the Battle of Bosworth Field. Um, Richard, as we know from the marks on his skeleton, was... Took some hits. Yes. And I, I think the battle had turned against him and he was deciding that he was going to have to go hand-to-hand with, um, well, not hand-to-hand, but man-to-man yeah. with Tudor. Didn't make it. Um, and with Henry Tudor victorious, he became Henry the Seventh, and, I mean, kicked off probably one of the best-known periods in... The Tudors. I mean, the now Tudors. it's a series. <laughs> now on TV. Um, something so interesting about this story to me, though, and especially the Tudors, which I'm as interested in them as anybody else is, mm-hmm. um, is how unstable their power was and how that instability lasted for generations of yeah, Tudors. It was like a very tumultuous but steady. Mm-hmm. Period in English history. Yeah. Um, just to give you some numbers on that, a lot of it comes because of Henry Tudor's really weak claim. It's, it's, um, through an illegitimate line of a family. Right. And, um, when he became King Henry VII, there were 18 living people who had a better claim to him than he did to, to the, the throne. throne. One of them was his mother. <laughs> One of them was his wife. I guess you can count them on your side. But still, <laughs> a lot of people. That still leaves 16 others that uh, would like to make their presence known. And so the Tudors hunted most of those York possible claimants down <laughs> over the next 30 years, neutralized them, had them executed. Some of them genuinely were trying to rebel. Others were executed on trumped up charges. Um, probably the most dramatic example is um, George, the Duke of Clarence's daughter. Mm-hmm. She was executed, I think she's about 67 years old during the reign of Henry VIII. Um, and even as late as the reign of Elizabeth I, there were still Plantagenets in the Tower of London. Yeah. Pretty, I mean... That's you, quite a legacy. You, you think things are, are over with this dramatic battle, but they're not. They never are. They're not. They drag on and on. There's always someone who wants to make their bid for power. It's a rough way to live. It is. I always sort of think that when we cover these royal topics, like, <laughs> what would it just be like Yikes. to live in a family where you know that constantly you have to be on the lookout for people that make, yeah. even if you want none of the trappings of it and you want none of the power, people could think that you might want power. Or you might have a valid reason to look at it. I came into a couple of examples of York family members who did manage to lead a retired life. And I was just thinking how... How much of a suck up you'd have to be for your whole life to the to the reigning monarch, but how quiet. I mean, you just could not make one yeah. false step. Um, and then to, to think of the opposite end too, the people who are actually engaged in the fighting here, all these 17 year olds, 18 year olds who their whole life has been nothing. Secure but, your claim yeah. someday. Um, and then it either works or it doesn't. But for Richard, <laughs> I mean, I guess he got there, but it didn't last long. Yeah. He was buried quickly, anonymously, no clothes, no jewelry, no winding sheet. 
um, at a place called Greyfriars Priory. And during Henry VIII's reign, this kind of gets back to the the recent news story. How he ended up in a parking lot. How did he end up under a parking lot? Um, (laughs) Thanks, Henry VIII. (laughs) Kind of has to do with him. (laughs) During Henry VIII's reign, who, of course, as you guys know, Henry Tudor's son. Yeah. Um, he, uh, the, the priory, Greyfriars Priory was demolished and a garden took its place. For a while. For a while. Then a bus depot. <laughs> then a playground. And I'm sure, depending on how long ago this playground was, it can't have been too long if it came after the bus depot. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of, of people who are, who maybe played there now and they're thinking, oh my God. <laughs> I, I was on the swings over Richard III. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then finally, this parking it's lot. paved as a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the there was this interest um, from a society that um, focuses on um, sort of further exploring Richard III's memory, <laughs> uh, interest among them in getting this site excavated. Um, and finally, enough money was raised. These excavations began. And as we mentioned earlier, they found him, I think it was, about the first day. Yeah. Pretty remarkable because they did not know the layout of where the Priory had been, had been. in relation to the parking lot and where, as you know, it was now. Whether Richard was even definitely there because yeah. there there were rumors that he had been uh, thrown in the river. Right. <laughs> so, Well, and because it was unmarked and there was nothing with him. There was nothing to ensure that it hadn't, that the body hadn't moved inadvertently even over the years. Like Mm -hmm. people could have easily dug it up and tossed it elsewhere and not even known that they were handling that of a king. Richard. Um, So there's a lot of questions now about where he's going to end up. (laughs) Um, You know, his supporters want him in Westminster Abbey. Uh, Other people want him different places. Um, it'll be a, an evolving story, I'm sure, but one that's clearly caught everybody's attention and probably got them thinking more about the man behind the Shakespeare character. Well, and I like that there have already been some really cool um, technological approaches to the story where they're taking their remains and sort of rendering out the most realistic oh, yes. images of I him. I saw that. Which is, I, I love that because it just makes history come al- alive in a way that most people in the modern era don't think about. You know, we think about them as like the guy in the painting a lot of the time. But to see a 3D rendering based on his skeletal structure it makes him more real and more human. Especially for the age he lived in. Yeah. <laughs> because the painting style is, is it's so hard to see... Uh, to imagine what somebody may, might have looked like. Yeah. Although now that we've seen the 3D renderings of what he looked like, it's, yeah, okay, he's painting. Not about, not the likenesses, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to see somebody and think that, that this was a, a person. And also it sort of put uh, an end to a lot of the myths about his physical handicaps, too. Yeah. Um, he was not hunchbacked. Um, he had what looks like pretty severe scoliosis from his yeah. his spine that he developed in adolescence. But um, a lot of this was clearly played up to further emphasize his wickedness, as people would have associated yeah. the two um, in earlier times. And, and just uh, more crazy rumors about him. Born after two-year pregnancy, <laughs> born with a full set of teeth, you know, just yeah. really bizarre stuff. Um, Which is, you know, part of the fun of history. It is. It is. But also sometimes crazy and outlandish. 
So I'm glad that this happened. Obviously, I love a good uh, exclamation. <laughs> Who doesn't really? <laughs> um, but this this is truly a remarkable one. So a, a good one to end on. Okay, so Holly, we have some listener mail today. We do. Um, I always like when we hear from students who are doing things history-related, podcast-related. And this email comes from Betsy. She lives in Wisconsin. And she wrote to say um, that she, well, I'll just go ahead and read it. She said, last summer I went to Europe on a 12-day trip with my school. Sounds really fun. Really fun. jealous. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The Stuff You Missed in History class podcast not only provided me entertainment on the Never Ending flights and bus rides, but it also comforted me when I was homesick and not able to sleep because of jet lag. So that's very sweet. And then she also said that she's using um, the the podcast to help her in class. She's in a forensics class in high school. Another thing that sounds really so cool. So cool. We did not have that I did I was not have school. forensics <laughs> class. Um, but she said that every year uh, you get to pick a, a time period, usually about 10-year time period, that you have to write about and deliver a speech on. And she said that there's a lot of competition about picking uh, – a unique topic, something that not everybody is going to already know from that time period. So she said that the podcasts have really helped her and a few of her other teammate friends pick out subjects this year because the time period was 1901 to 1916. Um, and she said that she and her friends chose the Poison Squad episode about Dr. Wiley. One of her friends picked an episode on Mistress of Murder Hill as inspiration to kick off their forensic so project. Cool. Very cool. Um, So thank you, Betsy, and I hope your project went well. Um, Also, we have another small bit of business. We do. (laughs) Um, You guys knew it was coming. I didn't want to string you along. Um, But this is my last episode, so it's very... um, I'm making pouty lip. Yeah. I I don't want to get too... I'll start tearing up, as I always do in these (laughs) things. But, um, I mean, I I certainly wanted to um, thank... Folks here at How Stuff Works, um, uh, you know, former co-hosts, of course. Yeah, you, Holly. It's been a lot of fun hosting with you. It's for this so stint. fun to host with you. So <laughs> I'm, I, I wish you would stay forever, and we could just have a big three or four people run this oh. biz. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be pretty fun. Just for the record, too, I know there have been some questions on Facebook and. Uh, Twitter and via email. Sarah is not leaving House of Work. She's no, just going to go back to doing primarily editing, which is really what all of us do. Yeah. Um, but then we get to do the podcast as sort of the cherry on top of our uh, delightful day jobs. So that's a that's a good hint too. Uh, maybe um, if I have crazy. Richard the Third ideas. I'll be whispering them in <laughs> Holly's ear. So there could be cameo appearances. <laughs> we hope in the future. But yeah, she'll still be around. So she's not leaving us just just the podcast for a bit because it is. Um, you know, it takes some work. And I've done it for so long now too. I yeah, figured it was time need a little to break. Pass the torch. Get a little break. Get some out. new blood in here. But I she'll did. be giggling at the water cooler <laughs> while the rest of us are researching. It's fine. Pulling your hair out after late research <laughs> nights. I'll be just relaxing. Completely relaxed and Hey, you guys, what's up? Fresh as a daisy over here. <laughs> I did want to thank listeners, though. Um, just while I, while I have this platform, too. I mean, I don't say it lightly. I don't say it um, 
<laughs> without really meaning it. But you guys have been so inspiring and the stories I've heard from you, um, the stories related to podcasts, the things that uh, a show that I've had a part in have inspired you to do. <laughs> That's always really amazing. People who've gone back to school, people who are doing their forensics project. That's so neat to me. And um, even just folks, when I hear that you're inspired to go research a subject some, some more, that's yeah. really touching. And then um, I just have to thank you guys, too, for being so kind and generous. That blows me away. <laughs> the giant box of postcards I have, the emails that come pouring in, the um, sweet gifts and books and all sorts of things that listeners have sent from all over the world that you guys have taken the time to um, think about us and, and send us things means a lot. So I've really enjoyed it. As Holly said, I'll still be around. Yeah. And um, I'm also on Twitter, too, if you want to keep in touch that way. I'm at Sarah Dowdy. Sarah with an H, Dowdy with an E-Y. <laughs> Very hard to spell name. Um, so, yes, I definitely look forward to, to still hearing from y'all. And uh, it's been really fun. And we can't thank you enough for all you've contributed. And, you know, you've really enriched it. I know a lot of people just adore you and you're the voice of oh. history to them, which is great. Uh, it stinks for me because I have to go on without you and <laughs> muddle through. But, uh, you know, you'll, I'll have you here as handy reference. But I yeah, think, I think be great. you've done a great service to sort of the history community globally. You've oh. really made a lot of things come alive. <laughs> Don't get all, you know... Don't be all dismissive. It's I'll, true. I'll just get teary, Holly. That's okay. Thank you so much, though. That's, That's true. Really sweet. Um, well, I guess signing off. So now you beep, beep, and screech out into the <laughs> sunset. <laughs> Go home a little early today. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't leave before doing the standard pitch. There you go. If you want to email Holly and Tracy, you can do so by writing them at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're on Twitter, Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And we have a really awesome article to go with this awesome topic. Yeah, if you go to our website and you just type in Richard III, you'll come up with a few different articles. But the really fun one is the top ten heads that rolled during the reign of Henry VIII. Which is one I edited, as I've mentioned before. (laughs) And it was so much fun to find art for. Usually a top ten, it's kind of like, oh, it's a lot of images. Yeah, it's a lot of work. But when they're fun, they're really fun. (laughs) And it's germane because... As we've mentioned, there's some of those. The Richard III legacy (laughs) drags into the Henry VIII world. So, uh, if you want to learn more about that or anything else your mind can conjure, you can do so at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.